Welcome to the C-Suite podcast from the FinTech Talents Festival here at the Brewery in London. We're producing this show in partnership with Andaria, experts in scalable embedded finance solutions. I'm your host, Graham Barrett, and I'm going to be interviewing the key speakers here on Andaria's stand. Hope you enjoy the conversations. I'm here with Bryony Krikorian Slade. She is Payments Innovation and Resilience at UK Finance. Nice to see you here, Bryony. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Now, you've just shared a session, haven't you, around digital identity. What was discussed during that session? So, we were looking both at a micro level in terms of what digital ID can enable for individual firms. And then we also talked a little bit about the macro picture of a roadmap for digital ID for the UK. In terms of individual firm embedding, we had someone there from an ID provider, IDverse. We had a financial services provider, Lloyds, and we also had someone from a retailer who's active in 25 different countries, Glovo, uh, a delivery app business. And what was really interesting is they've got you know very similar kind of use cases across the different environments. So digital ID can be used for anti-money laundering or know your customer purposes when you're onboarding customers. It could be used for monitoring fraud and compliance as you go through customer journeys. And I guess, crucially for this environment, looking into the future, it can be a, a key enabler for propositions like open banking, like open finance, where you need to be sharing data across multiple providers, financial services, retail, other providers, and having a kind of single source of digital ID is absolutely crucial for that. We also built on the previous panel that was looking at some financial inclusion aspects and how digital ID, smarter approach to digital ID can help with that. So taking different data points where someone might have very scant documentation, but taking different data points in their lives to try and build a digital ID for them and therefore like promote financial inclusion as a whole. And in terms of digital ID, how do you see the banking and finance industry here in the UK introducing it? And maybe what are the security implications behind it as well? Yeah, it's a really interesting approach that we talked about during the session as well. So from a macro perspective, the UK is in a very different position to some other countries where there's been perhaps a government-based backing to, to digital ID. For example, India, which has led itself in a very short space of time, one or two years, to huge uptake of their UPI instant payment system. In the UK, we're a very long way from kind of having a centralised digital ID, perhaps cultural, political reasons for that. But there is a, a big appetite for creating a reusable ID to be able to promote these and enable these different propositions. Um, so in the UK, we have a kind of bifurcated approach to digital ID. We have one ID for public services. We have a, a separate market for commercial ID with about 40 commercial providers in the UK. And what we're finding is a lot of our members, UK Finance primarily represents banking and fintech and financial services. A lot of our members are starting to embed with an individual commercial provider. Yoti is one that we talked about today that has partnered with Lloyds. But what our members are really keen about is ensuring that that is an interoperable system. So even if they partner with one commercial partner, they can then provide interoperability with other environments the customer is going to be interacting with so that we can have those kind of retail use cases enabled and other core use cases. Another thing that everyone on the panel was really keen on was seeing the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology 
technology really pushing forward use cases that would promote a reusable ID, so kind of cataloging them and promoting them in the industry so that there's more energy behind a kind of trust framework that they've created. So really trying to kind of turbo boost the growth of reusable ID in the UK. That's great to hear. And you're also very busy here at FinTech Talents, aren't you? This afternoon, you're chairing another panel about buy now, pay later. What challenges exist around buy now, pay later, particularly in a cost of living crisis? Yeah, again, a really interesting topic that UK Finance has been looking at for a number of years. It's obviously clearly still a growth area. And what's really interesting is BMPL models being deployed for different sectors. So, for example, there's a a kind of very bespoke BMPL model that works with the education sector. And it's also interesting to see how it interacts with embedded finance. So often those two terms are conflated, but buy now, pay later is basically deferred credit. Embedded finance just means you don't see the provider behind the retailer, but some retailers are kind of combining both. So for example, on the panel this afternoon, we've got Samsung, they've got embedded finance, and they also are offering a buy now, pay later provision. There are clear kind of benefits to it. So customers love it. And actually, in some cases, the providers on the panel think that there are clearer repayment terms around BMPL than there are, for example, behind credit cards, for example. But at the moment, it is a primarily unregulated sector and we do need to ensure as going into a kind of cost of living or continuing cost of living crisis that we keep an eye on that across provider credit exposure and things like credit rating agencies can help with that and you know we're starting to see that with the BNPL sector providing data to those agencies. Now let's just finish up the conversation I know you guys at UK Finance have been busy over the summer with this future payments review so Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, Joe Garner, former CEO of Nationwide, was asked to do this review by the Chancellor back in the summer, and UK Finance has been working very actively with its members to respond to that. We uh, kind of submitted a, a very extensive evidence base on the consumer payments that are happening in the moment in the UK and how well they are provided for. But we did identify that central bank digital currency and new payments architecture, which are two major infrastructure pieces, that are going to be built over the next sort of five, 10 years will cost like 10 to 20 billion for the payment sector. So we've flagged concerns around needing to ensure the use cases for each of those are really clear. So is there a, a really clear kind of use case for digital cash in the retail environment? What do retailers really think about that? Equally with the new payments architecture, is it trying to do too much? Should we keep the scope kind of narrow on those use cases where it can really move the dial? And obviously, the new payments architecture can be an underlying layer for open banking. So one of our points is let's kind of leverage what we've got already and really push forward with open banking. And we expect Joe Garner to kind of come up with those sort of views as well. How do we expedite the growth of open banking in the UK? I'm hoping that we'll hear more about that alongside the autumn budget. Perfect. Well, Bryony, Krikorian, Slade. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you. I'm here with Suresh Patel, who's the VP EMEA at TeleSign. Suresh, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Could you start by giving us a brief introduction to TeleSign, maybe, and the problems you're trying to solve for your clients? So TeleSign believes in continuous trust, believe in a digital age where consumers want to trust the brands they work with and vice versa. So TeleSign connects, protects and defends people in the digital world. So we seek to work with organizations to help them identify issues when it comes to onboarding, account takeover, when it comes to detecting fraudulent actors on their platform. So we have 
over 2,000 data signals from our continuous trust authority and we utilise those data signals and phones them the signals from over 60 operators to come up with risk indicators for brands to use. Okay, brilliant. And you spoke on a panel, didn't you, here at FinTech Talents about AI and digital identity. What were some of the points you made during that session? The panel itself is really interesting. We talked a lot about machine learning and the application for machine learning to detect fraud. And one of the big issues that came up was around brands are finding it difficult to onboard customers and they lose a lot due to friction. But utilising some of the signals that we can provide, and that's all done invisibly below the line, the customer doesn't know they're going on, signals around the phone number, means that you can get these risk signals in real time and therefore you can only spend those valuable dollars that you want to spend on onboarding and credit risk to check on the customers you actually want to onboard and help you detect the bad actors. How concerned should we be about identity fraud? I mean, I think we've all heard some horror stories. How bad could it potentially get? It's interesting. I mean, there's a particular expression called account takeover. We've seen account takeover rise by over 300% in the last two or three years. And the main reason for that is because there's been so many data breaches. With data breaches, means that people's identities are sitting there in the dark web. You can buy a, someone's profile for as little as 90 cents. It's rife for them doing account takeover. That's certainly something to look at. Yeah, so the obvious follow-up question is, what can we do to combat this? Yeah, to, to combat account takeover, essentially you want some other signals, real-time signals, that when you're working with a consumer, you want to make sure that consumer is still the same person that you onboarded, because you probably would have done a whole bunch of tricks when you onboarded. So in order to do that, we provide things like signals from mobile phone operators. So I'm connected to the operator around the world, so in real time, if you're concerned, let's say someone's come through to your call center and they want to do an email change or an address change, and you want to find out, does that person still have the same phone number that they had when they onboarded? So I could do a check to make sure that that SIM hasn't been a SIM swap, that the, someone hasn't come along, gone to the mobile operator and taken over that SIM. And that means we can protect that account from being taken over. Now you mentioned customer onboarding. Obviously, every company wants that to be as frictionless as possible. And that's certainly what the consumer wants as well. But how do you do that without compromising security? Yes, and that is the million dollar question. We ran a consumer trust index survey earlier this year and that was a problem for about 25%. Our responses is how can we make sure that we're protected during that process? And the way that you can do that is, like I say, invisible risk signals. Utilize the telesign invisible risk signals around the phone number, get the operator data in real time, and utilizing these risk signals, we can find out, is that person worth doing business with? And secondly, is that person still the same person? challenging times for sure. It is indeed. But um, Suresh Patel, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you very much. I'm here now with Kurt Azapardi, who is the CTO of Andaria. Kurt, nice to meet you. Nice meeting you too, and a uh, pleasure being here. What are your first impressions and what kind of conversations are you looking to have here today? I was just uh, literally on the way looking at some of the panelists and some of the participants of the event. Um, I think it's going to be great. Really, uh, lots of opportunities to speak with some great people in the field as well. Look, I mean, we, I mean, I'll explain a bit more about Andaya. We, we focus more on the embedded finance space, right? I'm keen to see any technological uh, developments that are happening around that space in particular, also around the regulatory side of things, because I feel that's going to be a big driver in how the space will shape out, but also looking to, you know, grow our network in terms of partner relations and who knows, maybe some interesting prospects as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're the man behind the tech, aren't you? <laughs> how have you developed Andaria's embedded finance solution? From the very beginning, we've focused predominantly on the automation side of things. Automation, not 
not only in terms of our client servicing, but also the product in-house for our key members of the team. And that, I, I would experience, has brought about quite a natural evolution to Embedded Finance as a product, because when you think about it, Embedded Finance is literally embedding the financial services within another space, right? So having the right technologies, having the right frameworks and the right um, APIs, etc., it was like literally the next step. Okay, so we build the automation, we build the technology to serve our own internal stakeholders now literally leverage that and build another layer to just service the clients. So that's how it all came about. I guess, like I said, the success factors were predominantly based on obsession with uh, automation, as well as building the right frameworks and technologies that allowed us to scale. How do you see the solution evolving? I would say the next big thing in uh, embedded finance would be the productization in the sense that embedded finance, if you look at it more of as a concept, and then what I firmly believe is the application side of things, right? Put those together, that becomes your product. And what do I mean by that is really seeing and developing our application to really fit different applications. So we've seen embedded finance, we've seen players talk about, for example, buy now, pay later. We've seen more embedding within, for example, an ecosystem, creating that closed loop network. So really, I would say the next evolution of this would be to really elaborate, so to speak, within a specific application within the industry. Now, that sounds enough to be going on with for, for one person. <laughs> Any other priorities over the next 12 months? No, I would say it's a further uh, adaptation of what we develop for what we call our internal stakeholders, right? And being able to productize those and offer those kind of services also to our clients, because again, the success is what we feel is a requirement for us would most likely be a requirement for also our clients within the embedded space, right? We're also looking at uh, enhancing our card offering within the um, embedded finance space as well. And last but not least, I don't think we can ignore completely um, AI and developments that are happening there. So really looking at uh, ways of uh, incorporating AI into our mainstream product. Well, good luck with all of that. Kurt Tazapathy, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Okay, I'm here with Valentina Christensen, who's Director Growth and Communications at Oak North. Valentina, nice to see you here today. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem at all. Now, you're speaking on a really interesting panel, certainly the name of it, The Fight to Keep the Crown, which sounds very intriguing. Can the UK maintain its crown when it comes to being a global fintech leader, do you think? Yes, absolutely, of course. This is the short answer. <laughs> I'm fairly biased. But no, I mean, look, the UK has a combination of things that make it a fantastic place for fintech businesses to be born and thrive. You have a forward-thinking regulator, you have some of the world's best universities, which obviously produce some of the best talent, you have a diverse investor network, you have the benefit of being globally located somewhere that means you can do business in the US, you can do business in the Far East, you know, you have the financial center, obviously a global financial center, and if you think about London specifically, you've got a combination of things that are unique. You have forward-thinking regulators, you have four of the world's best top 10 universities, you have a global financial center, all within a few tube stops of each other. So that's not something that you can replicate in Paris or Amsterdam or Berlin or New York or California. And in the same way that in the 80s and 90s, you had cohorts of people going to Silicon Valley to see what the magic was there. You've seen the same thing with the UK and with London specifically. Can we keep our crown? I think absolutely in the next three, four years, within the short term, as you kind of look more medium to long term, the question sort of goes, where do those fintechs that have reached a certain scale and certain maturity, where do they go from here? And if they look to the public markets, 
there's always the question, do they list in London, do they list in the US? And I think we need a lot more growth investors here. We need a broader growth investor market in order for fintechs to want to list here. We have a lot of work going on now in terms of pension reform, which will hopefully mean that there will be that additional capital, but there's a shift in mindset that's needed as well. Otherwise, you will just see a lot of those fintechs going over to the US, and then I don't know whether the UK can maintain its crown after that. Yeah. So you think that's a real threat that that could happen in the years to come? Absolutely. I mean, a number of fintechs have said they don't know, or it will be London, or it will be the US. And, and look, things change, of course, and the markets aren't in a great place right now. But absolutely, you know, you need that reform. You need to see the London Stock Exchange becoming a more attractive listing location for high growth companies. You need the investors that understand those types of businesses. Otherwise, as I say, you're going to find this sort of cliff edge where businesses move from private to public and their investors will simply say it doesn't make sense to do it in London. I saw this stat which was that you could argue whether Tesla's a tech stock or not. And Tesla's certainly not a fintech business, but Tesla stock trades four times more a day than the entire FTSE 250, which just kind of gives you a picture of the scale. I mean, if you look at the NASDAQ, for example, obviously, you know, predominantly tech stocks. You look at the New York Stock Exchange, about 30% tech stocks. The UK is about 3%. So it's got some way to go for it to be the place for high growth companies to choose. Yeah. So the obvious question is, how can that change then? How can we ensure that the UK is attracting those companies? So look, it's a combination of things, right? You need to have, as I said, you need the growth investors, you need to have the reform, and that's where the work around pension funds, for example, you've got a huge amount of capital that could be going into these types of businesses. You need to have the ecosystem, you need to have the understanding. You know, the UK is very much focused on dividend payments, so you tend to have big industrial stocks that you know, you know you're going to get those quarterly dividend payments. If you're a high growth tech company, you're reinvesting that money back into your growth, right? You're not putting it out in dividends. So it's a sort of mind shift that also needs to happen. And take us through an Oak North perspective then. So I know you're just launching your business banking offering, aren't you? Can you tell us a bit more about that, what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So really exciting from our perspective. If you think about the gap in the market that Oak North is filling, when we first launched in 2015, we've had a focus on commercial lending. So targeting businesses with between a million to 100 million turnover that need capital to, to scale. And what we found really over the years is that if you look at the business banking market, about 85% of businesses bank with one of the big five banks. And we all know the pain points that they experience in banking with them, so I won't reel them off here. (laughs) And then if you look at sort of the neobanks, many of them have come to market with business banking offerings, but they're targeted much more at small and micro businesses. So once again, you sort of end up with this, what we call the missing middle of businesses between a million to 100 million turnover that just simply aren't having their banking needs met. And we sort of felt like we understand the market, we have the data analysis capabilities, we have the last eight years of lending to these businesses that we feel we are the right player to come in and fill that gap. Yeah, no, that sounds brilliant. Well, listen, thanks for for sharing all of those insights. Good luck with the fight to keep the crown and good (laughs) luck with everything going on at Oak North. Valentina Christensen, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Okay, I'm now here with Victor Mitois. He's VP of Growth at Numeral. Victor, nice to see you here at the event. Thanks for having me. Start by giving me an introduction to Numeral. What do you guys do? Numeral is a payment infrastructure company. We help fintechs, banks, any regulated financial institutions build pan-European payment flows working directly with their banking partners. And to do so, we abstract the complexity of building one-on-one bank integrations. We abstract the complexity of building custom payment flows that are resilient, scalable, on top of the payment infrastructure across Europe. I understand you were founded in France, you have an office in Paris, but also an office in London. So 
how do you see the differences and similarities between those places in terms of fintechs? Opening an office last year was one of the most exciting things we've done in London. The UK fintech world has always been fascinating when you, you come from France, which is already a very healthy uh, fintech country. Coming into the UK, what's staggering is the number of fintechs, just the sheer number of innovators that have sprung on the back of regulation in payments that have been very much at the forefront 10 years ago. So lots of uh, very innovative companies are there accessing the different UK payment schemes, BACs, FPS, CHAPS. And what's really exciting to see is how these companies are exporting themselves in continental Europe, in the US, globally. We exist to serve those companies as they start to mature in how they want to work, going from you know, banking as a service providers to working directly with banking partners, tier one specifically. Now, FinTech Talents is all about talking about the, the hot topics in the industry at the moment. What do you see as the main trends in payments at the moment? What's exciting from our perspective is, is the acceleration of payments as a, as a first trend, driven by regulation, new payment systems. In SEPA, for example, the mandatory obligation for every bank to receive and, uh, and send instant payments and reduce that price, it's going to create exciting new business models. It's going to accelerate embedded finance trends. So we're very much looking forward to that and equipping uh, financial innovators with the right infrastructure. We also follow very closely uh, embedded finance, which obviously is another major trend. The financialization of business models is one where we see a lot of opportunities. Yeah, really fascinated to hear more about embedded finance because we're really at the kind of infancy, aren't we, of embedded finance. How do you see that developing? Can't agree more. We think that ultimately every company is going to become a finance company at some point. Payments are expected, the number of payments expected to go by three times over the next five years, the fastest it's ever grown in terms of number. Now, that's on the back of new business models, new way of exchanging value. Payments are at the core of it. So we see a lot of opportunity there if companies manage to equip themselves with the right payment infrastructure. And just finish up by giving me some of your priorities as VP of growth at Numeral, say over the next 12 months. First and foremost, serve our UK customers. We serve on one hand, fintechs, payment institutions, electronic money institutions looking to scale their payment operations across Europe, adding you know, two, three, four, five banking partners across Europe to be as local as possible and address some of the challenges of scaling uh, pan-European, IBAN discrimination being one of them. You need local operations. That's one priority. And the second priority for us is to also support uh, building societies as a whole. Billion societies manage huge amount of money, they create a lot of opportunities through their lending operations, but they have a lot of modernization challenges when it comes to payments. So we're here to help them do that without the complexity and the cost. Well, good luck with that, and thanks very much for joining me on the podcast today. Victor Mitwa. A pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Joining me now is Dastan Shukanayev, who's the Senior Payments Technology and Strategy at Marks and Spencer. Dastan, nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. Now, you're speaking on a panel around embedded finance, aren't you, here at FinTech Talents. What challenges and opportunities does embedded finance present for Marks and Spencer? I think there are plenty of value creation around embedded finance. So, if executed correctly and in a holistic way, then we can create an additional value for, for the business and for the customers. And as the generational shift is happening in lifestyle, we are seeing people moving away from banking, traditional banking, into an omnichannel financing options, which is BNPLs or is going to be an in-house closed loop. So we've introduced our own SparksPay, but 
we believe there are a lot of other options which can capture different customer segments. So constant discovery mode, I would say, for, for the company. Do you think this opens up new revenue streams for Marks & Spencer? Definitely. So I think at any point, any company is not capturing all the, all the customer points and you would think that you are profitable and then you, you're growing, but at the same time, there are so much you're missing out because of people's profiles, backgrounds, and then how they want to pay for their goods and services. So there are certain ways of habits which we used to do since our childhood, which is hardwired. So sometimes the new habits develop with the new products, but in order to capture that, you should be able to be agile enough to introduce them on time. So I think it's it highly relevant to have this agility within the company of decision-making as well. Now, when putting this platform into place, how do you balance that frictionless customer experience that everyone expects, but also ensuring a safe and secure platform? For me, Apple is a very good example for everyone. They don't hold any regulatory or any liability in terms of that, but they provide a very secure gateway. So I think the that any e-commerce should provide this security for the customer, but without any financial regulatory liability, which I think so acting as a secure gateway is, is the number one priority for anyone. And that entails a lot of user experience designs and being more predictive of the actions of your customer. And I think with the introduction of AI and Gen.I, I think there are a lot of possibilities basically going forward. Now, fraud is obviously a hot topic at the moment with the advent of technologies like AI. What do you see as the main threats around fraud and identity theft? The fraud is getting creative and it's becoming more humane. So there is less automation within the fraud, but it's becoming more smarter. It's becoming a lifestyle, actually. If there was hackers, there were fraudsters, now I think you can basically buy any fraud instruments and identity details from the black market and everyone can become a fraudster. It's turning into a life-earning stream for many people. So I think we are facing huge challenges in that regard and we're just seeing the, the tip of the iceberg at this, at, at this stage now. How do you go about combating these threats? I think having a robust fraud rules is good and then as well as introducing strong customer authentication flows as well as embedding AI fraud mechanisms as well. So I think going forward it's going to be AI against AI in some ways, but we have a quite a good fraud rules, but still you never know what's going to happen because you can see these days a lot of companies are getting hacked. It's quite a challenge. So even though you don't have a fraud, but you never know what's coming next. Challenging times indeed, but thanks for giving us your insights today, Dustin Shukanayev. Thank you. A big thank you once again to all my guests who took the time to come and speak with me here on Andaria stand at the FinTech Talents Festival in London. Really hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to contribute to the conversation, you can do that on LinkedIn and all the other social media channels. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website at c But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.